Telemetry in launch condition. Missile in internal AC. Pressurization complete. again and welcome back welcome back to another episode of the baked and awake podcast as always i'm your host steve and uh very happy as always to be sitting down with you once again today to chat a little bit about a few different topics i know it's been a little while since you've heard from me and uh if you're still here tuning in because you're still subscribed whether by accident or in uh intentionally i want to thank you for joining me once again. Um, We've been doing this for a while now, and the last few months have been pretty busy for me in my personal life and in IRL out here in the three-dimensional plane, as it were. Um, I'll try to get you guys caught up on, you know, as much of that as is of interest and uh, appropriate today. But uh, among other things that I want to talk about today is... uh, couple different matters. Uh, last last podcast episode was on the dead internet theory. If you haven't listened to it uh, yet, go back and check it out. The dead internet theory and the uh, TLDR version, uh, best as I can summarize, is uh, one wherein it's been posited on certain internet forums over the recent years that um, a lot of the current internet that any given one of us interacts with on any given day is rife with interactions with bots that are undeclared uh, in most instances. Um, It is, uh, in the case of utilizing search engines, um, slightly deceptive and in many cases uh, less utilitarian and less functional than we have led ourselves to believe it has been over the years. Um, That being the continuous degradation of the older portions of the World Wide Web. You run into phenomena in the dead internet theory, such as link rot. Maybe we've all encountered that, where you've gone to click through to an image link before attached to an older blog post or uh, an instructable, something similar like that, where a resource is referenced and a hyperlink exists and you click the link and it's a dead link. Uh, There's a lot more to the dead internet theory and I found it incredibly fascinating, including an interesting and um, sort of seemingly dubious or uh, I should say insidious vibe uh, insofar as the proliferator of the explanation of the theory that I looked into, that I um, spent time with in the podcast, has a certain agenda at work. And uh, so again, if you haven't listened to it yet, it was back in the fall, and a wonderful um, 
thing to research and look into. I got a number of great comments on that podcast episode on my YouTube channel in the comments section, as well as a couple of fairly scarily worded, um, no better way to put it than the accurate way, which is to say hate mail emails over it. Um, which, you know, usually I have to take that as a sign that I did something right. Um, they're not usually moved to write and uh, threaten me and my family unless uh, I was saying something that made somebody upset. So take that for what it's worth. Um, something that I'm working on uh, that I want to really, I, I decided to not, full-on plagiarize my friend and fellow researcher and amazing YouTube creator, Andreas Exertus. Uh, but uh, instead of create my own entire podcast episode about this topic, I want to introduce a topic to you guys really briefly, point you at the show notes as I always do, uh, and have you go back and look at Andreas's excellent videos. Um, he has a series of videos on the topic of solid state flight. Um, I recently saw a video on YouTube a week or two ago showing a ionic uh, propulsion system being applied in the drone space, in the, in the flying autonomous drone space or remote control drone space, as it were in this case. Um, this is a rectangular craft that took off and hovered and was uh, controllable in the air in all axes and uh, had no moving parts as far as I understand. And this isn't hocus pocus technology. This is tech that evidently has been around for decades and has been researched very seriously in practical applications for at least the last couple of decades. Uh, Andreas is well acquainted with this tech. He was talking about it on YouTube over two years ago. He did several different videos uh, with different titles on this topic. Um, the key word on his channel that you'll look for if you want to go and, and catch most or all of them all at once in one search, other than going to the show notes, would be to go to Andreas Exertus's YouTube channel, Exertus, X-I-R-T-U-S. And I found most of the videos really quickly by um, searching flight or solid state flight. And uh, because he included those keywords in most of the videos on the topic, there's one on electromagnetic flight and NIMSA that I don't believe includes the solid state flight terminology in it. Um, think back in your minds and recall, uh, for those of you who are old enough to have come up on any of the... Uh, you know, older generation of novelists such as Jules Verne and uh, to a lesser extent, people like uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, etc. Uh, but definitely the Jules Verne era, um, Robert Louis Stevenson authors like the late 19th century, early 20th century authors who were uh, one foot rooted in almost a steampunk aesthetic, uh, the industrial age and the... Um, you know, we're talking dirigibles, zeppelins, gliders, biplanes, triplanes, quadplanes, uh, planes with 20 vertical <laughs> stacked wings and uh, propeller on them. Uh, things that, you know, many, we, we've all seen those uh, 
old archival footage and photos, I'm sure, of quote-unquote failed flying machine inventions, one after another after another of all these failed flying machines. And I think uh, between pondering the relative utility and extent of uh, usefulness of such known technologies as the aforementioned dirigibles and zeppelins, as well as speculating about artifacts found at uh, ancient sites around the world that seem to depict highly advanced uh, craft or uh, technologies, uh, at least in iconographic form, um, that, you know, that this is a possible representation in our human record of culture of the existence of advanced technologies that were at one point understood at a later point in time that we may be able to look at in history and say that's part of recorded history and people may have been experimenting with and reacquainting themselves with a technology that formerly had been better understood but was little understood by the contemporaries of that time. Uh, and here we are at the present state of things where a number of technologies, both in like semiconducting, like uh, what do they call it? Supercritical or subcritical semiconducting, uh, superconducting materials where they don't have to be as cold, but they still demonstrate superconductive properties. Uh, that is advancing greatly right now. Technology surrounding that, that's the uh, storied and often uh, wished for maglev technology, right? That was long promised and uh, wished for in the early days of electromagnetic research. So Andreas, as I said, has several amazing videos on this. And I went back and rewatched all of them over the last few days, uh, just out of sheer enjoyment and fascination. And he does such a good job with the language that he uses, the the visualizations that he pairs with his uh, commentary that I could do it no real justice to pr try to present it here, especially with an entire lack of visuals as a podcast experience is, you know, limited to being. Uh, I think we should have Andreas on sometime soon to sit and chat in a dynamic fashion about solid state flight, about ionic propulsion, about uh, the time he has spent in uh, related fields earlier in, in his life uh, as an academic, as a young academic. Uh, so that's how I really want to engage with this topic is by getting you know, I'm fortunate enough that I think if I uh, reach out to Andreas and give him a, a little time and opportunity to be ready to come through, he'll probably come through and hang out with us and, and chat about this um, as a topic as a whole. But you'll probably enjoy it more if you go to the show notes when you're done with this episode and check out the links to the YouTube videos that I don't think I presented them in any particular order here. And I think they each stand on their own fairly well. So I'm going to encourage you to just enjoy them in whatever order you find them uh, or try to, you know, see if you can ascertain which one was uploaded first and go after that one first, if anything. So um, 
Yeah, so that's that's the first real topic there, and uh, I hope you guys check out Andreas's content in general, not just on the solid state flight. He's an amazing creator, uh, and I actually think he just uploaded something. I swear he just upload, uploaded something today, a new video that I, I've yet to watch that I need to watch, So, uh, and that I'm excited to check out. Uh, okay, so the next thing I want to tell you guys about, I'm going to go ahead and pack a bowl for myself while I get ready to tell you this story. Um, and this is a story that it's been a long time coming. I think I've, I may have hinted at it here and there in the past, during the past couple of years in the in the podcast here, um, especially when I first started down um, this recent journey um, about a year or so back. Um, but I'm going to back it all up and sort of take things from the top as best I can for us here. And excuse me as I open my little stash jar there. Kind of a big big lid on that one. It's not it's not like a giant barrel of flour or anything, but good sized jar with a good sized lid. Anyhow. There we go. Now we're ready. Get comfortable. Session with me, please. This is still baked in a wake, okay? We just don't talk about the weed as much overtly, right, anymore as, as we maybe once did on the old podcast. All right, so speaking of things that we, you know, did or don't do or know or don't know about your host, Steve, um, I'm originally from Long Island, New York. Um, grew up there in the 1970s and 80s and uh, moved out uh, to the West Coast and uh, to the Pacific Northwest here, that is, uh, Back in 1988, so the, the late 80s, at the age of uh, 14, I had my 14th birthday out here right after we arrived. And um, But I grew up on Long Island until that age of 14, and um, I actually was adopted. I was adopted as an infant. So back in uh, my time, my era, in the 60s and 70s, uh, and even into the 80s in New York when you were born there and uh, happened through whatever happenstance to end up um, becoming part of the adoption system, uh, those were all what we know of as and refer to as closed adoptions. So uh, neither the adoptive parents nor the um, first family, biological family, birth family, whatever you want to call them, uh, would have any visibility in almost any circumstances, uh, in almost any case of adoption uh, with the other parties. So the child in question being given up will be issued a new birth certificate and in almost all cases be um, renamed by the adoptive parents as I was. Um, so I, I was very lucky. I had a great family. And again, if I've mentioned this in the past on the podcast, it's always been in, in relatively positive terms. Um, I can't overstate how fortunate I am. I still have a good relationship uh, with both my parents. Uh, my my adoptive parents are still together uh, and have been my whole life. Uh, I'm the oldest of six, and uh, all my other siblings in my adoptive family are all biological children of my parents, but I'm the oldest. Um, so I've, I've been told a few times over the years that I was a blessing in more than one way by those by my parents. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to believe them. I think they're great folks and have always tried really hard. 
uh, to do right by all of us. And uh, one of the things that they uh, characterized the, the blessing of me by saying was that if it hadn't been for me coming into their lives, if they had not been successful in adopting me, and I think they had been turned down once before for even adoption, um, the reason for adoption, uh, for those who, who are interested to know that, uh, you know, the mechanism that sort of was the real cause was um, my adoptive mother was unable to have any children of her own up until that point. She had had several miscarriages. So, um, and I think fertility science was a thing already, certainly, but it wasn't what it is today, right? Um, and so at a certain point when you have a few miscarriages, you may be told by your physicians back in 1970, whatever, that, hey, this may not work for you. This isn't working for you. So um, perhaps look to these other opportunities. So yes, I'm the oldest because <laughs> like less than two years after I was brought home, well, like nine months after I was uh, home and in my adoptive parents' home, m my adoptive mother uh, was found herself pregnant with who turned out to be my brother and the first of five biological siblings that they would go on to have. So uh, good times there and interesting, definitely growing up uh, with that family. Um, so as an adoptee, you grow up, especially, as I said, as a, as a member of a closed adoption, adoptee, you grow up really, you know, with no real information about your background and who you who you were before you were adopted okay um now this is my podcast and you're a bit of a captive audience obviously you can always switch right off uh but because this is my podcast i'm just going to share my lived experience and you know do fairly little apologizing for anything that comes through as you know, what you should interpret, I hope, as editorializing. This is my opinion. This is my personal perspective. You know, because some people may be getting ready to fire it up in the comments section saying, well, you are who you, you know, you're the child of the parents who raised you, blah, 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 blah. Like, just stop. Don't start. Don't even type the comment. I won't even read it. I don't want to hear from you. If you have a brother-in-law who was adopted or who your best friend who you went to high school was adopted and they're really happy in life and they're considered an absolute blessing because their mother was a double crack whore with airborne AIDS and, you know, if they hadn't been adopted, they would have been dead on the streets by the age of 10. Um, every different thing can happen. In adoptions, you can be adopted into an abusive home. You can be adopted into a neglectful home. You can be certainly saved from dangerous circumstances and placed in a better circumstance in an adoptive home as well. Okay? Um, I'm perfectly aware of and happy to acknowledge the fullness of the diversity of experience of everyone who goes through such as such a circumstance as adoption that said again my opinion adoption is always trauma the habit of or the 
legal position of the state of New York and many other states in the United States to have perpetuated nothing but closed adoptions for generations now has really erected massive challenges for adoptees, first families, adoptive families who are seeking to support their adopted family members in connecting with their actual roots, their biological roots. This is about more than, you know, good feelings and um, closure, you know, psychological matters. This may come down to access to medical records, which is a very big part of how the law was changed in New York in the first place back in 2019 uh, that resulted in the unsealing the official unsealing of everyone's closed adoptions in the state of New York from the entire era that I was involved in, a spanning like three decades or more. Um, so there's there's impacts here that are beyond the human interest story, uh, you know, entertainment tonight. Oh, these twins found each other after 20 years separated at birth. By the way, I'm not a twin. I was a little disappointed about that wasn't separated at birth from my twin, but that's cool. That's cool. It's okay. Um, so you grow up in a closed adoption, not connected to yourself, not connected to your roots, not knowing who you were, um, not having a good answer for people in the case of someone like myself, of uh, something of a mixed descent and a darker complected uh, person compared to everybody in my own family and household in particular, and certainly, um, at, you know, at my school and uh, especially when we moved out here to Washington State, um, you don't have a good answer for people when they walk up to you and say, hey, are you mixed or what are you? You know, I mean, I, I never had a good answer for that. I never had a good response for, um, you know, anyone walking up to me at the bus stop asking me the time of day in Spanish or when the bus was coming in Spanish. And I would, you know, turn to them and, you know, stumble through some half-assed attempt at a response in English and, you know, with a, you know, lo siento amigo tacked on to the end of it, because of course I didn't know Spanish, even though to any self-respecting, you know, uh, person of Mexican-American descent or any Hispanic heritage whatsoever, they walk up to me, they look at me in social circumstances, and I've watched myself be recategorized over and over again as they realize I'm actually a gringo, you know, and I don't, I don't match who I present as visually to them. Um... I bring that up because around, oh, I don't know, 11 or 12 years of age, I'm asking my mother, my adoptive mom, for more information about things. You know, I had kind of always known I was adopted. They, they were very upfront about that with me. Another big and important uh, thing that my parents did right was never hide that I was adopted um, or try to play, play it off like, oh, it's no big deal. No, you're not. No, you know, you're, oh, you came from your dad just like everybody else, son. You know, yeah. My little brother is my adoptive dad's absolute clone, <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, blonde hair, same, same build, same everything as my dad. And, uh, I couldn't look more different if you've seen me. So, um, uh, you know, around 12 or so, I'm asking for a little bit more information. And my mother's like, you know, I've been meaning to tell you this, but I was waiting for you to be more curious and want to know a little bit more. She's like, I know one thing. I know one interesting thing. And I've always been glad I know it. And I've been, you know, been, I've been waiting to tell you this when you were more curious. And, and what it came down to was my mom had looked at some paperwork that she wasn't supposed to look at when the adoption agency representative or caseworker, whatever you call this person, was out of the room one day. She didn't get much. And this was in the 70s, so nobody had no spy cameras or cell phone cameras to take a picture of the whole document or anything like that. Um, but my mother had seen parts of my adoption paperwork that included my birth name unredacted before it had been changed. And she's like, something just told me to look in this book, look in this folder while she was out of the room just to take a look, just to see what I could see. And she only got my name. She didn't, wasn't able to get any other info off the dock or anybody else's name off the dock, but it was like, you know, this is the paperwork for the adoption of one baby boy named Victor Lopez. So that was kind of cool. You know, I got, I got a name, Victor Lopez. And, and my adoptive mom was like, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I think I wrote it down. I had it written down for a long time somewhere. I don't know, you know, if it's in our paperwork somewhere or not, if I wrote it on our stuff when we got home, but I always tried to remember it. I always remembered it, and I believe your name is Victor Lopez, you know. And I'm like, okay, pretty sweet, you know. But again, this is still the 80s. You've got, you've barely got the internet at this point in time, uh, late 80s. Because uh, I think I actually, the time I remember the conversation was maybe a little closer to about 14 years of age, almost when I was getting out here to Washington, when we were all getting out here to Washington, and while we had, oh, 386 computers and stuff like that at that point in time, and probably some internet service provided by like Prodigy or CompuServe, um, you know, we're talking, this is the early chat room days, barely out of the bulletin board era. Um, you know, there's no Facebook, there's no social media, there's no national search groups to hook up with, um, in, in, in any kind of modern sense. So, uh, in fact, there were some archaic, you know, 20th century, quote unquote, adoption registries that you could register for. And I registered for one or more of those in my early 20s at one point in time, just trying to get my name on one side of the, oh, if you both register for the registry, we'll reach out and make it possible for you to contact each other. Uh, so nobody does that. <laughs> you know, those, I don't know how often those things worked back in the day, but it, it certainly never did anything for me. So, um, but all I had from that that moment at age of 14 on till till just the last year or so was that name, Victor Lopez, and nothing more. Um, we knew my birth mother, you know, was young when she had to give me up. What what, you know, biological mom who gives up her babies isn't, you know, some poor teen mom. Um and that she was probably of Puerto Rican descent. You know, we knew based on 
living in New York at the time that, that Lopez was a, a Puerto Rican last name. At any rate, fast forward to modern times. Sometime in 2020, I hear about this documentary on Netflix called Three Identical Strangers. This was a story about not only New York adoptees, but New York adoptees who had been adopted in a closed adoption system and the, the, the same closed adoption system I was part of and had been actually managed by the same adoption agency that I came out of, the very famous Louise Wise Adoption Agency. The Cliff's Notes version of Three Identical Strangers is three triplets adopted in the 80s, early 80s, just a few years after me in, in New York, were actually separated at birth by Louise Wise and participated, unbeknownst to them, in a decades-long, years-long at least, uh, there's no really nice way of putting this other than to call it what it was, basically a eugenics program, a nature versus nurture study, whereby one boy was placed with a white-collar affluent family of a physician, uh, you know, and, and his wife, who was a, like a uh, socialite and artist, some intellectual couple. The next boy was placed with a fairly average blue-collar family, like a union family, somewhere else in the in the area. None of these boys were very far away from each other at all. They were all right in like the New York, New Jersey area. I want to say all three of them were in New York, like out on the island in different homes. The third one was put in like a, you know, marginal blue collar, lower, lower middle class family. And these boys were followed and observed on like a semi-annual to annual basis for most of their childhoods until their respective adoptive parents, you know, would eventually opt out for one reason or another as they tired of the observations. They acquiesced and signed on for it initially uh, because it was presented in a certain positive sounding light. Oh, we're trying to help all adoptees by observing how, you know, your son does. They indicated to none of the adoptive parents that their son was one of a set of twins or triplets. So none of them had any intimation whatsoever that their boy, you know, might have had memories of some sort, whether they're conscious memories or visceral, physical memories of being separated from their siblings. Uh, so again, Cliff's Notes version, these boys slowly found one another. One boy goes to goes away to college, his first year of college, upstate New York, and is greeted all over the campus like a returning friend, like a returning, you know, compatriot. Uh, uh, they were calling him by a name that he didn't recognize. He made it slowly to his dorm, and by the time he got to his dorm room and found his, his roommate-to-be, and knocked on the door and, and presented himself, his own new roommate was absolutely shocked and stunned because while he wasn't absolute BFFs with this young man's doppelganger, he was well aware of him and was very close with the young man's actual roommate from the year before. 
So within hours of the first of the triplets arriving at his first year of college, I guess he went a year late, right? Because he was still a young guy. He was fairly fresh out of high school. But his his identical twin brother had preceded him there to that school by one year. And uh, within hours of arriving at that campus, they were at a payphone calling his twin brother. At that point, neither of the two of them had any idea or indication that there was yet a third. The third brother would go on to find them after they made major news headlines in New York and all over the East Coast. I mean, this was like Good Morning America material for these guys. They really were. They did the TV circuit, Phil Donahue and all of them back in the day as their as their story got out and became known, and especially once the third brother found the, the first two. But the first two were already in the news, making the, the papers all over the eastern seaboard. And brother number three, I think, was living upstate at that point in time um, with his parents, sees a, a photo in the in the newspaper of the both of them. And this is how these three found one another. So long story short there, they go on to meet other adoptees not unlike themselves, part of the closed adoption system, um, several of them also twins, several of them members of the Louise Wise program that was uh, not ever published, by the way. The results of this uh, creepy, stalkerish, nature versus nurture experiment with my fingers in the air and making air quotes here um, has never been disclosed to the public. Over time and through the complexity of feelings that they experienced, um, you know, having to come back together and find each other in, in such a manual, you know, pulling kind of fashion, um, nothing was fed to them. They, especially as they contacted additional adoptees that were in similar circumstances to them, and as all of them had, for various reasons, uh, come up against roadblocks before in, in particular trying to access medical records from their birth families. They began to work together to lobby to bring a case against the state that would eventually be heard in court and which was after many years of being ignored and languishing and not being listened to was something that they were able to bring to like the highest courts in the state and get heard. The argument being that the entire institution of closed adoptions was incorrect, was not healthy, was not the most optimal way of handling adoptions. And that people have a right to know who they are. So the law gets changed. The documentary gets made. I watched the documentary in 2020. I jump up and run up to my computer, find the website, State of New York, Births and Deaths, Records, Department of Health, or somebody, not sure exactly who it was who handles it, um, requested my unredacted birth certificate for the first time. Um, ended up getting my redacted post-adoption birth certificate yet one more time before I got the right one. They, they sent me uh, the unredacted because I was a little bit ahead of the laws had been changed, but the mechanisms being put in place for fulfilling the requests for the proper documentation were not up and running yet. So I had a bit of a false start there whereby I got the adopted, you know, 
Steve C. birth certificate. When I'm looking for a Victor Lopez birth certificate at this point. Um, you know, back to the drawing board, went back, re requested it again a few months later, and, uh, you know, got and could see that the program was up and running and they were fulfilling um, orders, albeit slowly, because it just so happened to coincide with the beginning of Bovid. Um, and so it ended up taking almost a year to get that document finally in my hands. Uh, but I did. Eventually I did. Incredibly. And in late last year, middle to late last year, I finally had in my hands my unredacted birth certificate. Showed my name was not only Victor Lopez, but it was Victor Manuel Lopez. And that I had a mother who was named on my birth certificate. And her name was Vivian. Uh, we got an address for the first time ever right in the Lower East Side in New York. The hospital that I was born at was exactly where my adoptive mom had always said she understood me to be born. Uh, actually, I think, you know, even your post-redacted, your changed birth certificate preserves that much information, right? Your your place of birth will be the same down to the hospital. Um, that was the Beth Israel Hospital in, in Manhattan. There's like seven or eight Beth Israels, though, in the region. So at any rate, incredibly exciting. Um really awesome stuff. Maybe you know where we're going with this by now, you guys. You're, you're hearing the story of my adoption and eventual family reunion here. <laughs> um, and uh, I packed this bowl and told you guys to smoke. I really hope you guys are smoking because I haven't puffed yet. So I'm going to do that as we continue this story. So uh, my wife and I commence to take our birth certificate that we have now, that I have now for the first time ever, and, uh, you know, try to try to do some damage with this baby, you know, start trying to look up Vivian Lopez everywhere we could. You know, we don't have any advanced search tools or anything. A good friend of mine, a fellow podcaster, Kenrick Regan from Spoiler Country, uh, Somehow got wind of my search uh, as I was like dabbling around the edges of Facebook and and getting in contact with uh, some Facebook search groups that ended up turning out to be incredibly clutch and uh, unbelievably effective. And Kenrick did reach out and put me in uh, in touch with a link for an incredible start page uh, that was absolutely full of nothing but like skip trace and birth and death records and reverse phone lookup resources and directories of all sorts of different kinds. It was incredible. What a crazy resource uh, he provided me. Uh, thankfully, I didn't end up needing much of that at all uh, because at, the, at that same time, I was being advised to connect with a group on Facebook, a community called Search Squad, that came through some uh, experience I had had over on TikTok. I was I was checking out TikTok. Uh, I had run into some dead ends searching for 
uh, Vivian Lopez on social media and uh, in any kind of uh, half-assed white pages that you can still find online these days uh, and had like lost momentum for a few months when uh, one day back in October, I said to myself like out of the blue, because I don't even use TikTok. I hadn't registered for TikTok. I was not on TikTok. Uh, but I just, it like hit me like a bolt. I was like, I wonder if there's a, like community of adoptees on TikTok. Like what, I think I got some inkling that there was a sort of a cool vibe, uh, over on TikTok going on, um, of people like creating content around mental health and stuff like that. And just su being supportive of that. Uh, so I think that's what got my mind thinking that way. And I was like, mental health, da, da, da. I wonder if there's adoptees on TikTok. Well, boy, are there ever adoptees on TikTok. Okay. Uh, so definitely this is a shout out to the adoptees of TikTok community. Um, you guys are absolutely incredible and remain a huge source of inspiration and comfort to me to this day. Um they're the ones who put me onto Search Squad. And they're like, get on Facebook, join Search Squad. Post in there, tell them what, what you know. Um, I had in the intervening time, you know, since I had run into dead ends with records, I decided, okay, I've got my birth certificate now. That's good. Confirmed the Victor Lopez name. Got Vivian's name for the first time ever. This is pretty cool. Let me go take a DNA test, right? So again, this is baked and awake. I know who my audience is. I took a damn DNA test. I'm an adoptee, okay? I've got reasons. All right, so yeah, I sold my DNA to the CERN or whatever. They're probably colliding it with fucking uh, bosons down in the fucking Hadron Collider right now and opening up miserable parallel universes. I don't know what they do with this stuff. I've got reasons. So, took a DNA test. That was interesting. It was instructive. Learned some things from it. But I didn't really find anybody from a Lopez side. There weren't really any Lopez's coming up. So, therefore, I had no names I recognized at all on Ancestry. So, I was still sort of at a, at a dead end when I joined TikTok. And they said... You've got your DNA test and you've got a birth certificate. You are you are so primed for these communities to find your people. So I get over to Facebook very reluctantly. Very reluctantly. You guys know I haven't been on Facebook in over two years. I have not been participating in that. And it's been really absolutely great not being on most of these socials. But uh, when it's all you're hearing and you're hearing that these people get results... I had to go check it out. So, got back on, dusted off the old account, got on there. Joined Search Squad, told them what I knew. Got pinged back in the group fairly quickly by a member of the group called the Search Angel. And uh, the Search Angel's name, if it matters, turns out to be Lisa. Wonderful lady. Lisa, I'm forever in your debt. Lisa started messaging with me, asking me some clarifying questions, you know, trying to get the full picture of what we knew, didn't know. Asked to see my docs and stuff like that. 
she was on to the right track in hours, really, and was putting me, putting Facebook profiles in front of me within a day. And by two or three days into communicating with Lisa, I think on the third day at the latest, she had a couple phone numbers for me to test, to try out. And the second or third number that she gave me that was a shot in the dark was one that she had just test called herself. She's like, I just wanted to see if anybody would pick up, so I hope you don't mind. And I didn't go very far with it, but I just I rang this number, and she's like, this, is, this number's good. Uh, they picked up, and I just you know, made some excuses like, oh, I got the wrong number, and hung up on them. But a woman's voice just answered the phone here. And... Uh, by the way, my, my search angel, Lisa, used to work for the IRS. <laughs> so I, I commented to her at, at one point that I was really glad she was using her powers for good these days. She said it could go either way at any given moment. <laughs> but uh, so she's got this number. She called it. She hung up on him. <laughs> and uh, she messaged me and she's like, if you're feeling brave, you could try this number, you know see if they answer again. So uh, I was like, well, let's do it. Obviously, at this point, we're, we're chasing folks down. So I call the number, and a woman's voice answers. And I'm like, hey, um, I'm looking for Vivian. She's like, I'm sorry, that's uh, it's actually my mother. Um, this isn't her phone anymore. I've had it for a few years now. And... Uh, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Um, you know, well, so I'm really sorry. Um, you know, I don't know for sure that I'm calling the right people right now. So please forgive me, but I'm calling for personal reasons. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm calling because I'm adopted and uh, I'm looking for my family. And uh, so the woman says, okay, wait a minute. Um, tell me, what's, what did you say your name was? Your, your birth name before you were adopted because I hadn't actually said that yet. So I'm like, well, you know, my birth name was Victor Lopez. And so the woman on the other end of the line says, shut up. And she goes quiet for a moment. And I just stayed quiet. And she's like, you're my brother. Um, and I'm going to try to keep it together here for you guys because obviously it was, it was a pretty emotional moment. Um, She's like, you're my brother, and um, I know all about you, and I've always known about you. Um, we've been looking for you for years. So I won't go into detail on that call. It was an incredible call. Uh, I have a younger sister, 43 years old, and uh, her name's Javon, and we called... Vivian together just a few moments later and had an incredible conversation with her. I have a lot more family as well. I have a younger brother, just 30 years old, just starting his family in life. My sister has two children of her own. I have aunts and uncles. I have cousins. Everybody in that family has known about me since 
each of them as they came along were old enough to know and understand about Mama Vivian's son, who had been given up. I have an uncle who is my mother's younger brother and who grew up his whole life watching his sister mourn for her lost son and who told me in strongly expressed terms how how hard it always was for her, how much the family always tried to support her through that grief, but that they knew that nothing short of this, this actual circumstance, this hope, this chance, nothing short of it would ever heal her inside. So again, I've been lucky. I've been lucky my whole life. My adoptive family was great to me. I never wanted for much. We weren't affluent people. We were solidly on that, you know, middle side of the middle class to the lower side of the middle side of the middle class, wherever we lived, on Long Island or out here in Washington. But, you know, I wanted to skate. I had skateboards. I wanted to ride bikes. We had bikes. I wanted to play sports. I could play sports, you know. When it was time to get a car, I was able to get a car with help from my adoptive parents. My parents' parents. The only parents I had. And now as a solidly middle-aged man who's already been a family man for a decade, who's been married for almost 15 years, um, I'm lucky again. Lucky that Technology has come to where it's come, including devious and diabolical technology like social media. Can you call social media a tech or is it a product of tech? You know? Anyway. Lucky that the family that I've been searching for my whole life, about whom I had no information and who could have been in any place in their own journeys through life, that I'm just so, so lucky that they were not just kind of ready for me. These people were fucking ready for me, you guys. They were waiting on me. Maybe they would have found me in another couple of years. I don't know. They might have. Maybe one of them would have taken a DNA test at some point. And then I would have popped because my info would have been in, you know, over at Ancestry by then but but I found them with a lot of help from my wife and a lot of help from search angel Lisa and a lot of help in the form of the original nudge the 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 the, the more recent nudge that is from the adoptees of TikTok community but you know I'm very lucky that my birth mother Vivian who as it turns out wasn't just a young mom she was a young mom you guys like junior high, that she didn't choose to bury the memory, to make it a deeply held secret. I could have been calling a sister who'd never heard of me before in her life, and who was shocked and dismayed to hear that she had an older sibling. So yeah, I was lucky. 
we talked for the first time on November 4th. November 3rd, I think. November 4th. November 4th, we did a FaceTime call with like the whole family. People were FaceTiming into the FaceTime call to, to, to talk to me that night. Um, and uh, so that was like right after I put out my last episode, as a matter of fact, right around then, Dead Internet Theory. Um, I think I alluded to the search at the end of that episode. I think I talked about the beginnings of the search. Stuff was happening right then. So it might be uh, indicated in the, in the very last content I put out. Um, but I wasn't here yet. I, we hadn't talked yet. So all winter long, we talked a lot on the phone, FaceTimed a lot, texted a lot. My aunt texts me all the time. My uncle texts me all the time. My sister texts me all the time. My mother texts me all the time. I've talked to my adoptive siblings and my adoptive parents more in the last six months than I have in the last couple of years, for sure. You know, this has brought both both families, I think, a little closer together than they have been in years. Um, and certainly make me appreciate everybody I have on both sides so very much. Uh, so we're sitting here as of this date. It's March 18th, and um, just about four weeks ago, on the 20th of February, my wife and two boys and I jumped on a plane and traveled to Orlando, Florida to visit with Vivian and my sister and my aunt, and my cousin, and everybody down there in that hub of the family that lives in, in Central Florida. Is Orlando Central Florida? I think it is. We did, we did Disney. We stayed six days. We stayed right with Vivian and her hubby of 30 years, Benny, right in their beautiful home. And, uh, they treated the boys like royalty. The entire family spent every spare minute with us all week long, even though everybody but Vivian and Benny are, of course, working age and, and have lives. And um, <laughs> under normal circumstances would not have been hanging out at Mama Vivian's house all week long like they were with us over our midwinter break. If anything... This episode is largely about this story and about the fact that until I started getting close to an outcome on my search, for my whole life I never really let myself feel how upset I really was about the adoption because I was grateful for my good family and the wonderful upbringing I had had and the friends that I have and the many cousins that cared for me as a kid. Aunts and uncles who remembered us on our birthdays, remembered me on my birthday, remembered me at graduation, remembered me at confirmation. You know, I wasn't treated like a second-class family member, anything of the sort. Doesn't mean my family was perfect either. Doesn't doesn't mean my adoptive family doesn't understand, you know, or that they do understand that, uh, you know, 
trite phrases like we're colorblind, we don't see you any different than us, blah, 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 aren't really actually helpful, you know, to a young person trying to find their identity in the world. But yeah, adoption is trauma. And it, you know, my reunion with my first family didn't come without a few tears and a bit of, you know, wondering what if, what if things had been different? Um, I think on the balance, I did get lucky and, and that, you know, from what I've learned from Mama Vivian, things at home were pretty zesty, let's say, okay, uh, during those years, especially the first few years after I was born. And I know for a fact I'd be a very different person if I had grown up with them. One last thing I am grateful for, though, I'll say this much, and I have said it you know, out loud to them as well during the trip when we were sitting together and, and getting to know each other. I'm also grateful for the fact that while I did eventually move to the Pacific Northwest, and it's been a wonderful move, and I wouldn't at this point in my life ever really consider moving back to the East Coast permanently, you know, uh, or even really, I, I can't imagine what circumstances would cause me to move there, not permanently. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad I was born in New York. I'm glad I'm a New Yorker at heart. I'm glad I lived there long enough to carry that with me through my life. Uh, as much as it makes you a bit rough around the edges, almost everywhere else you go in the world, if you are a New Yorker. And it's hilarious because any New Yorkers listening to me who are from the five boroughs will be like, you're from fucking Long Island, dude. You're not even from Long, uh, New York, you know, <laughs> whatever, right? And here's how that goes uh, for those of you who aren't aware, okay? If you're from the five boroughs, you shit on Long Island and you shit on upstate. And if you're from Long Island or upstate, then you're free to shit on New Jersey and everywhere else up in New England because, again, you're still from New York. Um, if you're from Long Island and, like me, you're from Nassau County, you're also free to shit on people in Suffolk County because that's further out on the island and, again, therefore not really New York. So <laughs> that's exactly how the pecking order works. Um, and it is very finely graded. It is a spectrum and it literally goes in like onion layers from closest proximity to the city all the way out. So um, that's what's up. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was, it was deeply comforting for me to be able to go back and sit there in Florida and reminisce with a bunch of other, you know, expatriate New Yorkers as we all hollered at each other about pizza and bagels and knishes and cheese blintzes and, you know, many other comfort foods that can only be found in the tri-state area, you know. The certain kind of hot dogs the hot dog guy sells you on the streets in New York. Um, I think it would have been 
still sweet and still wonderful if my family had moved me away from New York sooner, you know, had they adopted me and quickly relocated to the Pacific Northwest while I was still an infant or a toddler. Therefore, really a New Yorker, you know, on paper only, not having formed any memories of the culture. But I did have those memories. And that was just by chance, right? But Because our, our families were all from that part of the country. And, um, you know, we might not have moved to the Northwest at all. It just, it happened to be we had one aunt and uncle out here. There was a real estate boom in Long Island at the time, in the late 80s, that made little, you know, ramshackle craftsman homes worth unprecedented amounts of money. You can read about it anytime you want. You go back and look at it. I think they refer to it as the Golden Triangle era of real estate on, in New York history. And it was this triangle of real estate, you know, mostly on Long Island, but extending into like Staten Island and stuff like that, where everything was just a jillion dollars for 15, 20 years there. So you could sell a house here on in New York and move anywhere else in the country and double your size, you know, or have a new house built from scratch. Move out of a 75-year-old house and move to another state and, and, you know, move into a development, right? Let's not put any uh, fancy airs about it, um, but move into a development in another part of the country that's decades newer and uh, much larger. And that's exactly what we did in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, everybody got upgraded. So, and and as I said, that was a good move too. So I don't regret moving to the Pacific Northwest, but I sure am glad that I was able to connect with them as New Yorkers still. <laughs> you know, and if you're and if you're, you know, from anywhere and you've had that feeling of being somewhere else in the world. Maybe you're traveling and you meet somebody from back home and you, you know, sit together at the bar or they pull up a chair with you at dinner on the cruise ship or wherever. And you could sit there and it's just nothing but hits as you talk about the ice cream parlor that everybody used to go to, or you talk about the local teams and what bums they are. You talk about local things when you're not local. You know, or local things from your childhood that you've had to leave behind and haven't had occasion to think of in years. And uh, we got six days of getting to think about stuff like that together. Uh, obviously, I hope it's the first of many visits that I have with the East Coast family, with the bio fam. Um, we continue to talk quite a bit via text and via, via phone call since we've been back. And... Um, I'm really happy to share this experience with all of you here on the podcast because uh, probably not putting, you know, any kind of uh, hyperbole on it by saying that, you know, it's one of the biggest moments of my life, um, pulling up to Mama Vivian's house and meeting the family. And uh, yeah, if you, if you've, if you're an adoptee, <laughs> You know, if you're a foster child, a uh, foster kid or foster adult who formerly fostered, um, and any of this story was 
you know, a little difficult or full of feeling for you, uh, please know how sorry I am for that, but I hope it wasn't painful in any way. Um, I know that not everybody's reunion story is remotely as, as positive as mine has been, not by a long shot. And even my reunion, you know, it has its mysteries about it still. My mom, Vivian, doesn't know for sure who my dad really was and who she thought was my dad has not turned out to be my dad by DNA, right? Try to follow me here. And I believe her. It's 47, 48 years ago at this point in time. She was a teenager when she went through this. It wasn't the best of circumstances. I'm not going to go into it. You can conjecture as to how it how things happened. But yeah. But according to my DNA, which doesn't have anybody from my mother's side of things in my in my tree, in my record other than a, like a second cousin who we have since come to confirm, right? So there is there definitely is somebody from the family there, but she's a little more distant family. They all know her. And she's the daughter of one of my mom's brothers, half-brother. So, you know, so there's somebody from that side on the on the DNA test. But I do have several relatives from another side, from my paternal side, clearly. And um, based on our understanding and the records and the ability to exclude certain people based on the DNA, um, my search angel has confirmed for me and put me in contact with a gentleman similar in age to my younger sister from my mother's side, 43-year-old man in Atlanta, Georgia, who is almost definitely my half-brother. Uh, and the almost definitely part comes from the like margin of error within which ancestry likes to characterize somebody who shares 27% of their DNA with me. So once you're up above that threshold, about 25% is when you're a sibling. That's a half sibling. 50% shared DNA would be a full sibling or a child. Or excuse me, a, a 25% DNA is a sibling to a first cousin, and that could be a half sibling to a full sibling to a first cousin. And 50% DNA shared is what you inherit from your parents, right? You're generally 50% of your mother's and 50% of your father's DNA. So um, I've been in touch with Andrew, and Andrew has a half sister by his father, who is deceased, who would also therefore be my half-sister. She's also younger. Um, I'm, I've yet to make contact with that younger sister. Um, but so there, there we have a, a bit of a mystery insofar as Andrew and I both understand the DNA. We both took ancestry tests. He's the highest indexing relative of mine on his family tree. His family tree has a whole bunch of people that index with me, 
and his father, who, as I said, is passed away and has been passed away for like 30 years now, um, was himself adopted. Came right from the same neighborhood, same part of New York as my birth mother. And uh, so for a lot of reasons, I have questions still about what may have occurred there. Questions I may never get the answers to. Um, and frankly, things that I'm talking about here right now. And so therefore, uh, you know, talking about very personal stuff. I'm trusting, though, that the ether will carry my words and any feelings of anxiousness or embarrassment or frustration or anything that might come upon anybody who listens to this, uh, that the ether and time carries those away as it tends to do with all feelings, good and bad, given enough time. I'm sharing my story with you now in the moment, and this feels like one big, long moment since last November that's been going on for me. It really does. Every day is like a waking dream in some respects, just having those people in my life for the first time ever. It was surreal to sit in Orlando and get on FaceTime with Vivian and Benny and my wife and everybody sitting in Orlando on a couch and, and FaceTiming with my adoptive parents, Brenda and Steve, over in Nevada. So, that's really the whole story, though. Now you guys know. I have a whole bunch of family members who call me Victor now and who expect me to practice my Spanish a lot harder than I have been. Um, but that we're glad to know I've been practicing as much as I have. And uh, I'm just excited to see what the year brings us, what the years ahead bring us. All right. Yeah. What do you think of that? What do you think of that, everybody? Comment down below. If you're listening to this on YouTube, and if you're listening to this like a podcast listener, whatever that is anymore, you can email me at talktous at bakedandawake.com and um, let me know what you thought about that story. Another story I've been working on. Story I think I need your help with, honestly, before I can do a full, like a full breakdown on it. But this is something that's been bugging me for years, and I've seen a couple little pieces. I went so far as like trying to find some documentaries on this. Um, but basically, the story I want to work on is the question of whether or not the self-storage industry, right, the local, you know, you store it place, uh, is it like a predatory industry or a scammy industry? Like more than just in the most obvious and accidental ways. Some numbers that I found when looking into this and that I pulled from a couple of videos that I was watching, some of which had some good citations that I need to go back and like read the white papers that were being cited that were talking about this. Um, but some stats that I found included something like there's over $5 billion in like consumer goods that are 
disorganized and just languishing in people's homes in in North America, okay, um, in your garages and attics and things, right? Ten percent of U.S. households already rent or rented; they rented a unit in 2020. Um, so maybe that 10 percent is you know up a percent or down a percent year year on year, but 10 percent of households rent storage units. So, you know, if we have, you know, 300 million people in the country, that's 30 million storage units at least. Death, divorce, displacement due to like jobs and things like that and disasters are all causes for needing storage, right? These are mechanisms by which a, a person will find themselves needing to get a storage unit. The market, as of like sometime in 2020, in North America, here again, was $38 billion or more. It would appear that self-storage has uh, benefited and grown during the pandemic. As a result of the pandemic, numbers went down initially and then went way up due to like the robust housing market. I imagine that is uh, went down initially as the whole economy slowed down, then went up as a whole bunch of workers, especially high earning tech workers, found that they were being allowed to work from home for potentially the foreseeable future with no end in sight, thereby reducing a lot of people's need to commute into an office and in fact, need the sudden need to upgrade from, in some cases, apartments or small starter homes to bigger homes where they could create their own, you know, quiet workspace, perhaps, etc. Right. So the housing bubble, or the housing market, has really helped them. So yeah, I mean, public storage—that's the name of one of the biggest companies. I think they're the number one company in this industry. Uh, they made $3.5 billion in 2019. They grew 3% in less than a year at the beginning of COVID. Um, and that was cited as an important trend by them. Like that came from their CEO. So I don't know if that 3% from public storage, maybe that's $10 million or so out of a $3.5 billion company. Is my math horrible? It could be absolutely horrible there. Uh, anyway, um, that's just one company. And if the industry is $38 billion and the whole industry saw similar growth, then maybe it wasn't millions of dollars earned, but billions, you know, in growth for the whole industry. Uh, what I'm asking for help from everybody on with this is, do you have any experience with self-storage? Have you ever lost a unit to self-storage through like uh, paperwork oversights or fucking up on a lease, excuse my French, uh, or finding out a family member had passed away and that their storage unit had passed into, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, bad, uh, you know, lease state and therefore was forfeited uh, in lieu of any family member being able to take care of the bill and save the, you know, the family heirlooms or what have you. Um, maybe you've done storage unit auctions, you know, where you go and bid on abandoned storage units, right? Seize storage units. Um, that would be very, very interesting to hear from anybody who's got some experience with that. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I'm still putting this together, but 
I just find it an interesting business model and an interesting space. And I feel like my gut feeling is that they rely on the probability that a large percentage, maybe a bigger percentage than we think, is continuously being lost due to these different reasons. And when they lose the monthly revenue from that customer, they get to turn over the unit and in the process of turning over the unit, often recoup outsized um, value from it in the form of like inflated bidding on the storage units themselves. Does that all work out on paper to be more profitable than just taking good care of people's stuff and making it affordable so that they are able to afford their self-storage unit and keep it for years at a time? I don't know. I don't know. So since I don't know, I don't have, you know, my theory fully formed. And therefore, this is not a segment. Forget everything you just heard and only reply to me if you have information about your own personal experiences with self-storage. Otherwise, forget you heard anything and carry on. Uh, by the way, a few you might notice or maybe you've tried to email me in the last uh, couple of months. I did have a website glitch. Uh, I thought I was being slick. I was uh, over the same past few months that I've been going through my adoption and reunion journey that I just told you guys all about. I was also studying at home a uh, self-taught, um, you know, self-paced program uh, put out by Google called their IT professional certificate program. And uh, I was able to complete that in the recent months as well. Um, six individual smaller modules, each of which had individual certificates and uh, a couple of big tests at the end and a overarching certificate. So um, that's something that I've been working on. And by the way, if uh, you're listening now and you're a former colleague from software or a uh, listener who happens to work presently in software, I'm actively seeking roles in QA and in project management. Um, I have the IT professional certificate um, recently acquired through Google as of now. And I'm definitely looking for opportunities to connect with people who are working in VR, people who are working in 3D printing. Um, and I am looking to work on or with the development side of your teams as opposed to the client side. And those of you who work in any area of the software development life cycle will know exactly what I'm referring to there. I've always been a client-side QA tester up to this point in time. And while I'm not an automation ninja or anything yet, uh, I'm very much interested in working with teams that are doing automation and learning those skills as well. That's the next step on that front. Um, however, back to my website, bakedinawake.com. Uh, and my, <laughs> I'm laughing at myself as I recall this because I'm so ridiculous, you guys. Um, as I just get done telling everybody to, to hire me <laughs> in tech, 
I blew up my own website. I changed the DNS server settings on my website because I set up an account on Cloudflare because I read too much marketing jargon from Cloudflare one day and decided that I was going to switch my domain name servers on the back end on my website to a Cloudflare uh, specified server. I had opened an account with Cloudflare and everything. They have free accounts as well as their paid accounts. So ostensibly, this was my new DNS server that I had access to through Cloudflare. Long story short, set it up, made the changes, updated my website. You know my website went down. So the domain stopped working, email stopped working, and it was broke for a while before I knew it. Then it was broke for a while after I knew it, while I sort of was paralyzed with frustration and embarrassment. Then it remained broken after I went back to Cloudflare and read all their instructions again, and then went back to GoDaddy and read all their warnings again, and tried to revert things back to GoDaddy default domain name servers myself. Looked good. Didn't work stayed broke. So I let that go like another few days, another week or so, and then I finally got on the phone with GoDaddy and, you know, went back to them crawling on my hands and knees and admitted what I did. And uh, it took them a, a quick minute to, to fix the website themselves. So it uh, was not trivial. Do not change your DNS settings if you don't know what you're doing on your uh, website back end. Uh, and definitely don't change your DNS settings if you just sort of think you know what you're doing on your website's back end because you don't really know what you're doing. I certainly didn't. So, <laughs> website's back up, bakedinawake.com. Email's working again. Talk to us at bakedinawake.com. I welcome your emails. I love hearing from you. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry I didn't get to see you while I was in Florida. I hope you heard this episode. I hope you made it this far. Uh, I'll be back. And next time, we got a rental car last time. We're probably going to get one again. I'll drive up to Jacksonville and say hello to you there. Uh, Tony, your recent trip to California looks like it was absolutely unbelievable. I love seeing the pictures of you and your family. Thank you for sharing so much of your adventures with me and sharing all the thoughts you always do. I hope you know I read every single message you send me, and they're all very welcome. So please don't stop. And that goes for the rest of you, too. Please don't stop. Uh, thanks for listening today. Let me get this shut down. Let me get into the editing booth, get this chopped up, and get it out to you. Go check out Andreas's videos about solid-state flight, and then comment or email me about that technology. Maybe you're a pilot. Maybe you're a drone pilot. Maybe you're into RC. Maybe you're into ham radio. Maybe you're into uh, any number of different uh, topics that sort of touch around the edges of this interesting technology. I want to hear from you because you guys make the show better. You really do. And uh, it has been a long time since the last episode, and I promise you that it won't be as long until the next one. Thank you once again. Love you guys. We'll talk real soon.
Until then, smoke some indica and do shit anyway.